session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show and suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I do the summary tonight for the book for the past week, I wanted to announce the book for next week that I'll be discussing on Monday's show, and that is A Natural History of Human Morality by Michael Tomasello, A Natural History of Human Mor- Morality, by Michael Tomasello. Uh, the book came out, it was 2016, so last year, and I have not read it yet, so it's my first time reading it, but it looks like it's a um, book looking at how human morality has evolved, um, and really I don't know much else, because I'll be starting it myself tonight, so I hope you'll join me in reading that book. I'll post a picture of it in the next day or so, so you can make sure you have the right book, and I hope you'll join me in reading and discussing it on next Monday's show. But the book for the past week that I'll discuss tonight is The Invisible Gorilla, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us by Christopher Chabris and Daniel Simons. The Invisible Gorilla. Uh, I found this book very interesting. There's a lot of research in it that I'd seen in different places, but it was all compiled together and very easily to, easy to digest about different ways that we actually think our brains can do more than they can do, which I know sounds disheartening in a way, but essentially they they point out these six illusions that we have about ourselves and the ways we can think, um, and I'll get into those, that actually are not true. And although that sounds disheartening, it's good for us to understand our limitations and to be in a realistic relationship with ourselves and what to expect from ourselves and other people. Because as we'll see, we tend to think we can do things that we actually can't. So what are these six illusions that they talk about? I'll go through them briefly one at a time. So the first illusion that they talk about that we have about ourselves is the illusion of attention. So we have this illusion of how much of our environment we're actually taking in. And we think we're taking in so much more. And there's no way we would miss certain things. But as the research they share shows us, this is not, in fact, true. And the title of the book, The Invisible Gorilla, uh, comes from an experiment that the authors did that shows this illusion of attention. Now, if you haven't done it before, I highly recommend it. And I'm basically going to do a spoiler because I do want to talk about it. So um, if you've done it, it's very interesting. If you haven't, uh, I'm going to tell you what happens in this demonstration. And then you can maybe show it to other people. Go to the invisiblegorilla.com and they have some demonstrations there. But what they do is they have you see a video where you are asked to try to count the number of passes 
basketball passes between players wearing white shirts. Now there's three people in white shirts, three people in black shirts, and you're supposed to focus. And it seems like it's an attention task to focus how many times the players in the white shirts pass the ball. So you're watching them pass and it's about maybe 30 seconds long. And then you finish and you have your answer. Now, what's incredible is that during this video, the 30 seconds and you're counting these passes that are made, someone in a gorilla suit walks through the scene, even stops in the middle and kind of beats on their chest and then walks away. Now, when I say that, you think, wow, this is so such a big deal. There's no way someone could miss that. When in fact, 50% of people don't notice this person in the gorilla suit going through the shot. And really, like I said, they stop there for a second, beat on their chest like a gorilla might do, like Tarzan or King Kong, and then walks through the scene. And actually, I did this with my father. I had him look at it. Now, you might know his vision is not as good as it used to be, and he was kind of using his magnifying glass that he uses to, to sometimes read things, but he missed the gorilla. And I was almost laughing watching him look at it, because when you know the gorilla is there, it's, it's comical, it's funny. But when we're trying to focus on something, it shows us that actually we can miss so much, and especially that we can miss things that we don't expect to see. And this is something that we notice with um, our ability when it comes to attention, that it's actually not as good as we might believe. So there's something you can call inattentional blindness, where we're actually blind to seeing things that we're not paying attention to or that we're not used to encountering in certain situations. So it turns out we actually take in a lot less of our world than we think we do. You might think there's no way I would miss that, but actually it turns out you can't do that. We only have so much attention. And this is why you, driving while you're on your cell phone, even if you think, well, it's hands-free, that I'm okay, we know that it still has a negative effect on your driving. You, because you're focusing on the conversation, a lot less attention is left for you to focus on driving as optimally as you can. Now, you might not get in an accident every single time, and that's kind of the problem. So it doesn't impair your driving to the point where you can't even drive straight, but it does make you less reactive and load, notice less in your environment. The second illusion they discuss is the illusion of memory. Now, a lot of people think that our memory works in the way like a tape recorder, that everything is hap that is happening, I am putting onto some kind of tape recorder that then is going to be in my brain. And then if I try to retrieve a memory, all I got to do is go back. Okay. September 8th, 2014, bring up that memory and everything comes back to me perfectly. And this is absolutely not the case. Now to begin with using the illusion of attention, we also know I'm not even noticing everything around me to begin with, but now just focusing on memory itself, we know that we actually remember things far worse than we think we do. Not only that, we can easily create false memories. And in experiments, many times they have done exactly that. For example, they'll doctor a picture of an adult, but when they were a child in a hot air balloon. And it's funny when I read this because I just went on a hot air balloon yesterday for the first time. It was a very fun experience in case you've never done it, but they fake a picture. So basically like Photoshop a person's picture so that it looks like they're in a hot air balloon. And the people have never done this before. 
But seeing that picture actually for some of the participants has them create a memory where they remember details of this experience being, being in a hot air balloon as a child that never happened. And these aren't people who are liars or bad people. This is just everyday people like you or me who, because they're seeing this image, their mind creates this memory. So our memories are far more fallible than we like to think they are. An area where this can be very costly to certain individuals is an eyewitness testimony. Now, we'd think if someone says they saw someone at the scene of a crime, then they must be right. And unfortunately, a lot of convictions are made with just one eyewitness saying that that's the perpetrator. That's the person who committed the crime. Unfortunately, very often this proves to be untrue. And as I'll get into the next illusion, even if they're confident that they know who the person was, it can turn out that they're actually not remembering the right person or they actually are picking the wrong person. And many people have been wrong, wrongfully convicted. And sometimes years later, and this, the book talks about one story where someone was convicted of a, a rape they did not commit because years later they did DNA testing and they found out that in fact was not the person that the victim thought was the rapist and someone had served, I think it was something like 12 years for a crime they did not commit, but only were exonerated because the DNA evidence was conclusive that it was not him and he was then released. And actually the victim and the person who was wrongfully convicted now tour the country and talk about this issue that we can't just convict people based on eyewitness testimony alone. We would think that we're much better at it than we are. We think, well, if I saw someone, I'm going to remember them. But in fact, this is not the case. So we have to accept that our memory is not as good as we think it is. And this is amongst several reasons why when two people talk about an argument they've had, and I've experienced this so many times in family or couples therapy, they talk about a fight they had and they remember it completely differently. You said this and I said this. No, I never said that. You said that. No, I... And it's not because either one of them is liars or they're bad people or they're trying to manipulate the situation, but we can actually remember things very, very differently, even if we were both there at the same time. So when you hear their stories, a lot more of it is how they felt about the interaction, not facts about what happened. And that's why in therapy also you'll focus a lot more on the feelings and the facts, because the facts are disputable and we're not even sure exactly what happened. But how the people felt, that's still real and is still there. The next illusion is the illusion of confidence. We think that if someone is very confident in what they are doing, that necessarily means they're good at what they do. But this is not the case. And in the next few weeks, I'll read a book about how confidence can manipulate us and how it tends to work almost every single time. But this illusion is this idea that if we're very confident, if we see someone very confident about something, it means they're either good at it or if they're saying they remember something, that in fact they definitely do remember that thing. You know, people say, oh, I'm 90% sure about this. Well, a lot of times that doesn't mean very much and we shouldn't give more weight because they said I'm 90% sure, as is the case with eyewitness testimony where the person might be so sure of it. And think about it, in that situation, they're put on the spot and the police has asked them and a lawyer has asked them. They become stronger in their conviction that they what, what they remembered was right, especially with the stakes being so high. It's a lot easier to say, I'm so sure of it, especially when they get positive reactions from the lawyers and from the police. Okay, good, we found the perpetrator. 
they're much more likely to become stronger in that belief that this was the person. So confidence does not necessarily uh, correlate with ability or with something being true in what we're saying. The next one is the illusion of knowledge. Most of us think we understand things and understand the world much better than we do. And they've done studies where they, for example, ask people, do you know how a toilet works? And they're like, of course I do. And then they say, well, explain it to me. And most people can't, can't get very far in explaining exactly what's going on. Or they say, do you know what a bicycle looks like? And they're like, of course. And people draw it, but they make a lot of mistakes or serious errors in what it actually is supposed to look like or what it should be, uh, how it actually would work. So we have this illusion of knowledge that we know things much better than we do. Especially this is true of predicting things, for example, in stocks and um, people in hedge funds, things like that. Very often there's so many stories of people that thought they for sure knew what was going to happen. They had this knowledge to predict what was going to happen, but it turned out they were totally wrong. It may be the first time they were right. There was a lot more luck involved than they realized. So we have this illusion that we have much more knowledge about the world and about things that we actually do. And sometimes if you ask yourself, you realize that. So for example, when I gave the toilet example, I'm sure a lot of you think I know how it works, but do you really understand how it works and what happens to make it work? Probably not. We know that it works and we know how to make it work, but we really don't know how exactly it works. So we have this illusion of our knowledge of things. The next one is the illusion of cause. We, as humans, we're looking for cause and effect. This happened because of this happened before it. And unfortunately, very often it's not the case. It works in our benefit to try to make cause and effect relationships because it can help our survival. Okay, after it rained, it got slippery and I can slip and fall. So if there's rain, I want to be careful. Or when I saw this happened, this happened after it, and maybe they were linked. And it's better for us a lot of times to make that causal link when in fact it doesn't exist. So we're very good, but unfortunately very bad at making correlations even when there, or causation when it's not there. The example they use in the book is ice cream consumption and drowning correlate. The more ice cream is consumed, the more there are drownings. Now, the connection isn't anything about ice cream and drowning being directly connected. The only thing is that when it's warmer, there's more people swimming and there's also more people having ice cream. So when they're having more ice cream, there's also more people in pools and thus more drownings, but there's not a causal link there. But unfortunately, we make these connections when they're not there. For example, someone becomes CEO of a company and the company starts doing really well. We look for reasons, oh, what does this CEO do that is so good? Look at her style or look at his style and he does that. And when he wakes up, he does that. And we start to attribute things to what's happening there, even though it's not the case. Another really big example that the book discusses is the fact or the belief, I should definitely say belief, that vaccines cause autism when this has really been proven not to be true. But unfortunately, people have still made this connection and it's been hard for them to break that there's this cause. Now, the times where people get vaccinations a lot of times coincide with the times that autism symptoms start to develop. So we see that two things that happen close to each other in time, we assume the first one had to cause the second one, even though 
the scientific evidence doesn't show us that this is the case. So unfortunately, we have this illusion of cause. Very often we see cause and effect when in fact there is no connection there. And the last illusion is the illusion of potential. This illusion has to do with things like when people say we only use 10% of our brains. And if we could somehow find ways to unlock that other 90%, wow, what do you think we would be capable of? Or the example of listening to classical music, listening to Mozart and how that makes us smarter. The first study that showed this showed this increase in on an IQ test, or not the whole test, but one um, exercise on an IQ test. But later research found no such connection, that you can just listen to music and become smarter. But unfortunately, because of the media that this study got, it's still a widely held belief, and I forgot the percentage of people, but a good percentage of people still believe that listening to classical music will make you smarter, listening to Mozart makes you smarter, and it'll make your babies smarter. So put the headphones on the womb, have them listening to it as soon as they come out of the womb and they're alive, make them smarter by listening to Mozart, and there are all these CDs and products that are aimed towards having little kids listen to Mozart to make them more smart, more intelligent. But the fact is, no research, the book says, no research has even been done on children specifically to make this connection. But we have this belief about potential that we can, with shortcuts, expand our abilities. Now, can we expand our abilities? Absolutely. But it takes hard work and practice and repetition. There aren't these easy ways that uh, indirectly we can just make ourselves geniuses and learn things or become much more smart than we are, or we think we are. So the book, you know, like I said, it can seem disheartening because it's telling us we have these illusions about our of ourselves. So we're not as great as we thought we are. But as I was saying, it's good for us to recognize our actual limits, to understand what your memory is like and what it's not like for ourselves and when we interact with other people and to understand the world around us. And we can be really surprised when we see some of these illusions in play and by having the awareness, well, that's one way we can make sure they don't trip us up as much um, as they can. So I hope you'll read this book if you haven't already, The Invisible Gorilla. I did enjoy it. It was my first time read, um, but I definitely got a lot out of it. And again, I'll announce the book for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show next week, A Natural History of Human Morality by Michael Tomasello. We've reached our first Commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaquil. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. I wanted to talk today about a topic I've mentioned many times before about being assertive. And I will talk about it in theory or what it means a bit, but then also I wanted to give almost like a, how do you put this? To ask you to take on the challenge of being assertive in your own life, basically a request um, or almost like an assignment for each one of us to think about when it comes to being assertive. So when we look at communication styles, we can divide them to passive or the three major ones, passive, aggressive, and then the middle one is assertive, the middle ground, which is much healthier. 
So being passive is, as the name implies, you are avoiding conflict. And by avoiding conflict, you're essentially um, just taking on whatever people throw at you. So if someone, we think they're a doormat or we think they're a pushover, this is someone who's passive. So they don't really listen to what's inside of them, what they want or feel or think about things and just take on other people's thoughts and feelings and just are agreeable to anything, even if they're hurting inside. And of course, this is going to lead to feeling negative towards yourself because you'll, you'll get mad at yourself for letting people walk all over you. But of course, also mad at other people, you start to build resentment over time. But of course, you're the one responsible for setting up this pattern with other people. So they, they maybe take advantage of you. And I'm not saying that's right, but you're also allowing for it to happen and creating the pattern yourself. Now, with the other extreme is being aggressive, which means that you forcefully ask for what you want with disregard for other people's feelings or thoughts or whatever else they might be feeling, kind of a my way or the highway type of a mentality. So you don't care if someone is hurt by what you say or what you're doing. You don't show any empathy for what other people might be experiencing or thinking in the situation. It's all about me. So in a way, it's the opposite of being aggressive, of being passive. Now, being assertive means that I with respect for other people, share what I think and feel about whatever is going on. So I will let you know what I think. I'll let you know what I feel with care and respect for you. So I'm not, um, some people when they've been passive for so long, they think now I'm going to be assertive and they say it with anger or they're really, uh, forceful in how they say things and maybe even threaten the other person. I think now I'm finally being assertive. No, you've kind of jumped over assertive and went to aggressive because in an aggressive response, you will say what you think, feel, um, and your ideas, but in a way that's respectful of other people. So that's what we want to aim towards, is to be assertive as often as possible. And for many of us, it's not easy to do this. We are much more comfortable avoiding conflict, avoiding uncomfortable conversations. So someone says something we don't like, and we just say, oh, yeah, that's fine. No problem. But in our mind, we're like, oh, I don't like that. Or I don't want to do that. Or why did I say yes to that? And then sometimes later on, we back out of it or we find a way out of it or we do it anyway. And we feel bad and we get upset with ourselves and the other person, which is just a recipe to make relationships fall apart. Of course, there's also passive aggressive behavior. This is kind of a, a subset, we can say, um, where we don't directly express our anger, but we do it in some kind of a passive way. So oftentimes this is done in jokes. Um, jokes and especially sarcastic jokes are a very passive aggressive form of communication. Um, you might also, for example, um, say yes to something, but do it in a bad way. So they say, oh, can you wash the dishes? And then you go and, and you don't want to do it. You think it's unfair. They've asked you to wash the dishes the last 10 nights and you purposely break a few of the dishes or the cup that you know that that person is going to use, you specifically don't wash it or you, you know, dip it in the toilet water or something like that to somehow get at them without directly expressing how you 
feel. So that would be passive aggressive. Another very unhealthy form of communication. The more we hold things in, the more we make things taboo to have conflict, for example, the more likely people are to use passive aggressive forms. And in Iranian families, we see a lot of passive aggressive forms of communication because of that, because we avoid conflict. We think it's such a horrible thing. We think it's wrong to say certain things or to think certain things or to have certain discussions. And because of that, people find ways to get those emotions across. But unfortunately, it's in unhealthy ways. These don't lead to the betterments of relationship. They just lead to things deteriorating. But what I was saying before about, and I had a hard time finding the word, but almost like an assignment or request while we listen to this talk about different types of communication and being assertive is to actually have a conversation within the next week where you use assertiveness. Now, I don't just mean in communication, but I mean actually initiating a uncomfortable conversation. So I can almost say for a fact, because I think it's so common, but that everyone listening and myself included has a conversation that they know they probably should or could have with someone that would be a good idea. Something they did bothered us. Something about what's going on with them is upsetting to us. Um, it could be something from the past. It could be a pattern of relationship or something, or you're dating someone and you're afraid to bring up the what's going on here conversation. Where are we going with this? And we hold things in and we hold back. And most of us are avoiders. When it comes to most of these types of conversations, we avoid and we make excuses. Oh, well, I don't want to bring it up. It's too early in the dating experience we've had. Oh, I don't want to talk about it. They just had a rough day or they just got a promotion. So they had a good day or I had a bad day. We can find a million and one ways to avoid these things because they are uncomfortable. We don't want to have them. And most of the time there isn't some type of pressing urgency. It's not like, okay, I have to tell them by tomorrow or this bomb is going to go off. It's just, okay, it might be good if I tell them because if not, this uh, underlying tension or this issue won't be resolved, but there isn't this pressing urgency that I have to have it now. Actually, a lot of times that people have big talks like this is because they are forced to, to have the talk. Something comes up like, oh, okay, I have to tell them by this weekend because this weekend is that wedding and blah, 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 blah. I have to make sure they know. And then we feel forced into it. But being assertive means that we take these things head on. We don't wait to be forced into the conversation. We don't wait to have to have the conversation or wait till it's too late. We actually take the action ourselves. So if you're listening, think about if there's someone in a situation that you know there's a talk that should be had, an uncomfortable one, one that you're not necessarily looking forward to, but I invite you to go ahead and have that talk. And from my own experience and working with people in therapy and also just talking to people in general, personal life, people recognize that usually the talk seems a lot scarier in our head than what actually happens in reality. Now, I'm not saying it's going to go smooth every time or it's going to feel really good right after. But most of the time we make these things much scarier in our head. Okay, I want to tell this person, um, you know, that, you know, we're dating, but right now in my life, I'm not at a point where I can have a serious relationship. So I want to let them know. 
that that's where I am. And oh my gosh, what are what is he going to say or what is she going to say? Oh, they might get really upset. Oh, it's going to get ugly. And we avoid it. But very often when people have these conversations, yeah, it's possible the person overreacts and, and goes crazy. So I don't want to tell you that I'm letting you know no matter what conversation you have, it's going to have a good and happy ending. No, not necessarily. But most of the time and very often people find that actually it goes a lot better than they think. And the monster under our bed is always scarier when we don't actually look at it and we don't face it. So if we have these conversations, we see that things go usually much better than we think. And there's usually such a relief from having these conversations. For example, you're hiding something from someone. Now, you know, it's something not a huge deal, but it's something that you think they're going to react to really strongly. And you realize, you know what, I, I just want to go ahead and have this talk as hard as it is. There's usually such a great sense of relief. Okay, now it's out in the open and we can deal with this rather than me keeping it inside, not sure what to do, and also feeling bad that I'm hiding this thing. So if we can be much more open and assertive in how we communicate with one another, we'll find that things go much better. Relationships actually do much better when we're open with one another, when we don't hide things, and when we engage in those uncomfortable conversations. You've heard me say so many times before, get comfortable with the uncomfortable conversations if you want to have a healthy and happy relationship, both romantically and other areas of your life as well, or even in your workplace. If you have some issue with your supervisor or with an employee, if you avoid the conversations, things just become worse. But if you show that we can have a respectful conversation, we can talk about things and deal with them. You're going to do much better with that issue and in the future with that person. And if you are going to bring up a topic, be ready that, yes, it's if it's uncomfortable for you, it's likely going to be uncomfortable for that other person. So even if it's something that the person has done that's upset you, if you start it with a huge attack, it's usually going to go really poorly and you're going to have a bad fight. But make sure you start the conversation softly with an open attitude, even acknowledging, you know, I know this isn't easy to talk about and it's not something I'm looking forward to talk about, but I wanted to talk to you about X, about this situation. And just open discussion that way. Um, the softer we open the discussion, usually the better it goes. If we start with an attack or if we start really harshly, usually the conversation goes for the worse. But if you're listening, and I hope you were thinking while I was talking or even after I finished talking, think about someone that you could have one of these uncomfortable conversations with and take that assertive step to not avoid conflict and not avoid the discomfort, but to face it head on, be courageous, be brave, be bold, and talk to them about whatever that thing might be. And for better or worse, at least you know you spoke what was on your mind and had a conversation that can lead towards a better relationship and for you to feel like you're being true to yourself. So I hope everyone will will uh, engage in that exercise for this next week and, of course, going forward. But I say for this week because if you have done so, you can let me know what what you did and how it went, either calling in or on Facebook, Twitter, or my Instagram, let me know what kind of conversation you had. And lots of times relationships can significantly change for the better by having these types of uncomfortable conversations. Going to therapy very much is engaging in a process of having some uncomfortable conversations with a third party there that can help facilitate the process. So I hope you will go ahead and do that and practice assertiveness in that way. All right, we're going into our final commercial break. 
studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadid Halakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yes, Dr. Holakwe. Thank you for taking my call. Sure, thanks for calling. Thank you for this. Yeah. Um, well, my name is Ali. I live in L.A. as well. And I just wanted to know a little more about autism um, because I was recently diagnosed with, with autism. And a few years back, I was diagnosed with ADD. Um for ADHD, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to get some more information from you. Um, sure. About, about autism. Okay, how old are you? I'm 32. I'm turning 32 on June. Okay, so, in this month. Yeah. Okay, well, happy early birthday to you. Um, now, you. this was the first time you were diagnosed with, you, you mentioned ADHD, but autism, usually we, we see signs at two to three years of age, even sometimes before that. Um, did you ever have, did they tell you anything before, you know, did you ever get diagnosed or meet with a psychologist or therapist before well, recently? Well, you know, I, when I'm reading about the signs of, um, a, the autism, I, I see I have most of them, but as well as ADD. So that, that, that was the initial thought, like, you know, I, I, I went to doctor and, you know, they, I, they took this, um, from for ADD and they I was diagnosed with um, ADD but then mm-hmm. um, so I've since then I've been on medication um, and that was 2012 okay. and then um, a couple months back um, I was reading a little more about autism and I, I see a lot of signs of those in me so I well, what are some of those doctor. signs that you see that are like you know autism that i see like you know like ever since i was a kid the, the very main one i just tell you like you know it might be a little bit off but you know the very main one that draw my attention was like i was always uh, attracted to anything that spins so i had my collection of uh, these little motors mm-hmm. and um constantly like you know finding a way to make them spin faster and like you know even i remember one time i um, I always would break all my toys to get that little motor out of it. And I remember one time I plugged it to the to the actual outlet, like the little motor that's like one and a half volt. It, it works with one battery. Mm-hmm. I plugged it to the outlet, and it shocked me so much that it, I got, you know, um, <laughs> I got really shocked, and you know, it, it was really bad. But yeah, it, it, that was one of the things that. Um, made me read about why am I so much uh, attracted to like spinning stuff and like you know having collection of motors and still when I feel like you know a little bit agitated uh, most of the time the only thing that comforts me is like you know playing with my little fans you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little bit okay. silly and weird but you know so that that's that's why that's the yeah. Well, I'll tell you one thing that's striking me is, I mean, you're verbally, not that everyone with autism has um, verbal communication issues, but verbally you're very, you're very good at speaking. And that, that's something I that strikes me. I practice in my, 
my head yeah. how much <laughs> well you're doing wonderful you're doing great <laughs> but that's something that strikes me. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you know, autism, like anything, it can look very different. It's not just one type of way. But the fact that you didn't really get diagnosed till this age, it could be, you know, and like uh, another thing is that not only does it look differently, but there's it's definitely a spectrum and there's definitely a range of severity. So maybe it's more mild in your case. Um, tell me about your social life and how your social interactions go i have no friends and it's mm. extremely difficult for me to make friends um and but you know at work i'm really really like you know everybody knows me as just such a really nice guy and okay. everybody really loves me I, I do it so i'm a computer engineer uh-huh. and um sometimes i do interact with 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 users and stuff and um, I do very well, and you know nobody ever would ever imagine like you know I would have autism. But um, other than work, I mean, there is no way I can make friends. Uh, even the friends that I had, as much as I didn't call them or, or I didn't respond to their call, I lost them all. Well, and, you weren't uh, responding to their calls. I will. I will. I would not respond to their calls. Yeah, okay. so I lost them all. Well, why? Only okay. So why is that though? Why would you not respond to their calls? Um, I, you know, just not wanting to talk. It's huh. it, it's very difficult because uh, I think one of the reasons is because my 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 head just goes a little bit ahead and it's like, so I answer. He's gonna say this. I'm gonna say this. This is all like you know something that we already talked about, and he's gonna talk about this, and I don't have really patience to talk to like you know listen to him entirely so i just regret even not uh-huh. you know answering the phone call interesting so, well i mean you know some of that you know it also sounds a bit like that could be some of the adhd and also some anxiety like a social anxiety now i don't want to say your diagnosis of autism is definitely wrong i do think uh-huh. it, it might not be a bad idea to get a second opinion and either way uh, you know, if you do have autism, you're going to want to get treatment because, uh, you know, a lot of what you're dealing with, it can help. Of course, early intervention is always better, but better late than never. So, you know, I, I would hope you do start now. Um, what about... So my, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm so sorry. But, no, okay. uh, So about the treatment, what, my doctor gave me um, the Abilify, okay. and I've been using it, and I've, I've kind of... You know, I'm very, very, uh, it's been only like a couple, maybe like a week that it's been, ever since I started using it. And I think I've, I've, I'm seeing a little bit positive. Um, the fact that I'm able to call you, I think that's a good sign because I always <laughs> listen to you, <laughs> to you, but I never call. Well, I guess that's a good sign. Well, that's good. Know. I'm very happy that you were able to call. Again, even when you say it in that way, it seems like it could have a, um, it could be some anxiety again that that i'm picking up on but it, it really could be the autism or, or something like that or maybe asperger's where you have a hard time with social picking up social cues have you ever heard that before that you miss social cues like people are trying to com- non-verbally communicate something to you but you miss what they're trying to communicate yes, yes. that does happen yeah okay yes. so it yes, could, it, yeah it could be that and now you know, th- there's been lots of changes in how they even they um, talk about autism in the latest 
edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, they put Asperger's under autism itself. It's not a separate diagnosis, but I think lots of people still see it as separate. But I, just in communicating with you, you're verbally very good. I know you said you practice, but it's not like we have a script, so you could practice what you're going to say, and you're communicating really well. So I, I, I don't, I'm not seeing some of that, the deficiency there or you know, that inability there. I, I would really recommend, and also uh, going back to what you're saying, as far as the treatment goes, medication can be part of your treatment, but I would want you to you know, go get therapy. Also, there's things like social skills training, if really you are having a hard time with that. And I would really want you to better understand what's going on, because when you say I'm not calling people back, um, mm-hmm. there could be something going on there. You know, sometimes people um, with... Asperger's, for example, they really try hard to make friends. They're making lots of effort, but they can't do it. But what you're saying is you don't even have that much of an interest, or maybe because you get anxious about how the conversation is going to go, you don't even initiate interactions with people. Yeah, yeah, I think it's more from my side that, um, yeah. you know, that the fact that I am more in myself and, like, you know, I don't have problem being alone. But, yeah. uh, you know... But sometimes it does hit me very hard that, you know, I feel like, hey, I want to do something, but I have literally no friends. Yeah. <laughs> to oh. do it. Well, that's kind of that's heartbreaking. And that's you actually answered the next question I had, which was, you know, do you have a desire to have friends? And it seems like that is there. But, you know, but there are very little people that I think there will be a ma- good match friend with me because you know of all interest what what interests me to talk about i can talk about technology and computers all day long great most people do not many people might not like that yeah well i mean there might be people that don't but i'm sure well i kind of cut you off um but i'm sure there's other things you like but even in that there's lots of people that like those things that's that's the wonderful thing about making friends is we find people that have mutual interests and um I'm not saying every single person is going to like what you like, but I also wouldn't agree that no one likes what you like. So I definitely think there's people out there that you could have friendships with, but I don't think the issue is uh, just about interests. It does seem like there's more going on. Let me ask you this. What even um, prompted you to go see a psychologist that where you got this autism diagnosis? Where you said? Like what made you even go see a psychologist to, oh, to get this? Oh, because, because this is, as I said, you know, that, that initialized it. Like, you know, I was curious to know like, what, what is it that I'm so attracted with the spinning stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first I wanted to tell you, like, you know, don't worry about, uh, you know, cutting me off. I cut you off all <laughs> so many times already. <laughs> don't worry about that. And, you know, to tell the truth, I would, um, yeah, I keep forgetting what I was going to say. But you go ahead. That's okay. That could be the ADHD. Um, and maybe yeah. we, we'll cut each other off and it'll kind of work if we both forget what we're trying to say anyway. Um, but, you know, you seem like such a pleasant guy. Yeah, did you remember? Did you remember? Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, I think the other problem that I have, I, I'm, I probably, I'm a little bit of the more minority than, you know, because I'm, I'm not a heterosexual, I'm homosexual, okay. and that makes it that much more difficult to, for me to find a friend who has the same interests as me, like, you know, so I can talk about this stuff. Yeah. So it's, it makes it that much harder well, to, to find. Sure, I can understand, and, and you know, um, that might be an obstacle, or it actually definitely is, but at the same time, you know, I think you said you live in the L.A. area, and there's a very vibrant and big uh, scene here, of, uh, and it's much more accepting uh, of homosexuality so 
again, the, I'm not saying. True, let me tell you one thing that sure. I'm very paranoid about. Unfortunately, there is a there is a lot of um, STDs going on with this community as well, and you know the most people, especially in LA, in this community, are not people who be committed to a relationship. And surprisingly, I'm I'm a, I'm someone who is if I go to a relationship, I'm I barely have time for that one. So I, I I can never manage two person at the same time. Well, so, <laughs> yeah, I, and I don't want you know, and I don't want to get too many issues related at the same time. But there are concerns in dating, no matter what. But it, it seems like if you're saying my concern is, for example, STDs or that someone won't be faithful. Again, you can be concerned about those things, but that's different than I can't find someone. So I'm still, you know, when I communicate with you, I'm not getting this strong sense that you have autism, or if you do, it's very mild. I really would highly recommend um, seeing at least one other psychologist to get more of just an assessment of what's going on and get a diagnosis because I'm not feeling, you know, we've only talked maybe, you know, 12, 13 minutes, but the feeling I'm getting from talking to you, it's not something really strong there related to that. And I wish we actually did have more time. I have to wrap up the show in about a minute. Dr. Holakui, yes. I'm so sorry, but can I, can I, can I talk to you uh, just for one minute? Sure. Um, behind the air? Well, I usually try not to. We can do that after. We'll do that just because we we um, didn't get much time. And I would actually be very happy if you called back and we could talk a little bit more. But like I said, you know, because, you know, at 32 to get diagnosed with autism, it's possible that it was missed. Um, but usually, you know, the signs show up and they're pretty significant. So if you do have it, it's something mild. But it could be other things. There definitely seems to be some anxiety. Uh, the, the ADHD you also got diagnosed with. There just seems to be much more to the picture than that. And I would definitely say, and this part I want to make sure I say on the air, that definitely just medication is not what you're going to need. That might help, but therapy would be very important. And if someone does have autism in a child, they need all sorts of services, uh, language services, social services, behavioral things. So you know, they usually need a big, a very comprehensive set of services. But even for yourself, I'd highly recommend seeing a therapist regularly and be even related to that first, just really getting a second opinion about what's going on and then what to do going forward. I will, you know, keep you, um, when I, when, when I stop talking, I'll put you on hold so we can talk off the air. So I, you know, don't hang up. But like I said, I hope you'll call back because there's much more to unravel about what's going on. Or even if you don't call back, I really do hope you go see someone else and get some help. Sure. Okay. So hang online, but thank you for calling. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. We've reached the end of uh, tonight's show. Before I sign off the air, I wanted to say a happy birthday to Amir here in the studio. Uh, Amir is uh, who I get to do the Monday night shows with, and he makes me sound much better than I am by making sure everything goes smoothly in here. So a very happy birthday to him. It's a pleasure to work with you, and I look forward to continue working with you here at Radio Hamra. All right. We've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to all the callers and listeners, everyone out there. Hope you have a wonderful night.